Some of you have been wondering, when is this series on 1 Corinthians going to end? The answer is today. Um, so uh, hopefully it's been a blessing to you. Um, hopefully uh, through my reading the entire chapter each Sunday, I have helped uh, ingrain this text upon your mind and your heart. And I want to add this. I mentioned this at the beginning of the series, and I've mentioned it throughout the series. I've challenged you all to memorize this chapter of the Bible. And some of you, if you're honest, you would say, you know what, Pastor? Um, I cannot say by heart any part of the Bible more than one verse. So you know John 3.16, but you would say, you know what, honestly, I don't think there is a three to five verse section of the Bible I could say by heart, maybe not a chapter by heart. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I'm here to say to you, um, well, maybe a little guilty. I'm, I'm, I'm here to say, memorize the Bible. It's a blessing. What better thing to have in your heart and in your mind and what better thing to, to come into your mind in those idle moments where you have time than the word of God? And I'll, and I'll add this. It's always better to, almost always in life, it's better to do something with someone, especially someone you care about. So how about this? Growth groups, memorize this section of scripture together. Hold each other accountable. Husbands and wives, memorize this chapter of Scripture together. Um, youth, memorize it with your friends. But, um, you know, there's certainly still time to memorize this chapter of Scripture. It will be a blessing to you. I'm going to read the entire chapter one last time as we conclude our series on 1 Corinthians 13. What's love got to do with it? This is the Word of God. The words are also on the screens. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, And give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love. I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the greatest of these is love. When Jesus was asked, what's the whole point of life? His answer was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Lord, in a world filled with violence, there's a greater power and it is love. In a world filled with depression, there's a greater power and it is love. In a world filled with bitterness, there's a greater power and it is love. In a world filled with cutthroat competition and idols more than we can count, there is a greater power and it is love. So would you transform our hearts this morning? We need your spirit to be with us now. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week, uh, my wife and I had the real privilege of going to Mexico. We were celebrating our 10-year anniversary, and we had a wonderful week together. And um, we're both nerds. I'm the chief nerd of the two of us. Actually, she's not. Betsy's not really a nerd. She's kind of cool all the way around. Um, <laughs> but I'm a nerd, all right. And so we were at a resort, and we brought some books with us. And uh, uh, one of the books that Betsy brought was a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. I don't know if you've heard about this book by Marie Kondo. It's a beach read. I think Betsy read it in like three hours. But um, there's a big movement now in America, in case you don't know, about organization, right? Let's get organized. Let's get rid of our stuff that we don't need and, and, and become more organized people. And this book is a big uh, bestseller right now. and It's got a lot of helpful ideas. And I was reading about this movement of organization in America right now and um, sort of what's behind it. And a very insightful author said this. He said, look, part of the reason that there's such a trend toward organization now, and we all know what it's like, right, you, to open up your garage and you just say a prayer, Lord, I got to find these training wheels somewhere and, and I'm going to need your, your grace right now to just navigate through this garage We all have so much stuff, or most of us at least, and this author pointed out very insightfully, he said, look, part of the reason that we all have so much stuff is because so many of the things we buy now have a short shelf life, okay? Think about it. How many things that we own do we keep for five years? Do we keep for 10 years? Do we keep for 20 years? How many things that we own do we keep for 50 years? How many things are passed down from generation to generation. Uh, it's sort of just a fact of, uh, of life. Um, you think about your cell phone. The cell phone you have in your pocket is a more powerful device than 30 years ago computers that would take up entire rooms of buildings. And now the phone that you have in, in your pocket is a more powerful device than that. And of course, we can't wait, including me, to upgrade every two years and to get rid of that phone and to get another one it's just part of, and, and part of the time you have to because software updates and so forth. It's a part of the world that we live in. We live in a world with a short shelf life. So much of our toys, our technology, our clothing, so much comes and goes. Well, in this passage today, and we're looking at verses 8 through 13, we're wrapping up the series, Paul compares two things. He compares spiritual gifts to love, and he also gives metaphors about that which is temporary versus that which is permanent. And this is what Paul says. This is his point. He says, love has no shelf life. 
Love never ends. Love is the ultimate durable good. There will never come a time in heaven where we think, man, this love thing, it's time to put it on the curb and wait for somebody to pick it up and let's move on to a different virtue or a different characteristic or a different trait. Love will never get old. We will never tire of loving God and loving each other. Love is the ultimate durable good. It has no shelf life. Love is both eternal and it's indestructible. And so today, as we conclude this series on love, we're going to talk about what does it mean that love is eternal? And, and how should that impact our lives? What, what impact should that make? If we know that this thing called love is never going anywhere, and in fact it will define our, our eternal existence with God if we know Jesus what should we think about it? Three, three points this morning. Paul's making contrasts, so we're going to look at three contrasts. The first contrast is this, that which is good versus that which is essential. The second contrast Paul makes is that which is present versus that which is future. And then to connect it to us in our lives, we'll look at intentions versus actions. Because some of you have come up to me throughout this sermon series, and you've said very perceptively, you've said, Pastor, Thank you for what you're teaching me about love, but I want to I implement it into my life. I want to know how this should affect my marriage and my relationships and, and my coworkers and my neighbors and, and the various things I'm struggling with. And, and all I can say is amen. That's exactly what you should be saying. That's exactly what you should be thinking. So at the end, we'll look at a few thoughts about taking intentions about being more loving people and turning those into actions. First of all, that which is good versus that which is essential. Paul says quite clearly, he says, spiritual gifts are good. And, and there's lots of spiritual gifts listed throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. But he says, you'll notice starting in verse 8, he says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. The gift of prophecy will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. The gift of tongues will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Whatever kind of knowledge Paul is referring to there, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. You see, we need to know this. Every Christian has been given various spiritual gifts. And it's possible to be a Christian who is not exercising your spiritual gifts. You have spiritual gifts, but it's possible to be a Christian and not exercise them. But it's not possible to be a Christian and not have love. It's not possible to be a Christian and not have the love of God in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you're perfect or that you always express that love perfectly, but it's not possible to be a Christian and not have love. Let, let me say this. Um, the, sometimes it's, we, we, we think that maybe our spiritual gifts can be contrasted with, with love, but that's a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy to contrast love with our spiritual gifts because they belong together. But of the two, only love is truly essential. And I want to give a metaphor from biology that would maybe be helpful for you. You think about the various things that every human being has to have. Every human being has to have food. Every human being has to have um, water. Every human being has to have sleep to some degree. Every human being has to have shelter. 
but it's possible to survive with varying lengths of time without those things. So one of the beach um, reads that I had when I was in Mexico is I read a, a phenomenal book about the 33 Chilean miners that were trapped in a mine for 69 days. I don't know if you remember when that happened. It was incredible. The rescue mission to get those guys out of the mine was incredible. And at one point during their captivity in that mine, they were over 2,000 feet underground. They began to starve. They ran out of food. But the reason they were able to survive is because they did have water. They actually had water in the tanks of some of the machines that was clean enough for them to drink. You can survive a good while without food. You can survive a few days, I'm not sure exactly how long it is, without water. But do you know what the most fundamental human need is from a biological perspective? It's oxygen. In fact, we know that the human brain can go only six, roughly six minutes without oxygen before your brain begins to die. How should we think about love? For the Christian, love is the air that we breathe. It's the air that we breathe. We desire to be people who are so filled with love, and love so characterizes our lives that it is the thing that defines us. It is the need that we have more than any other. How often do we think about our breathing? Very, very little. There's very few times in your life where you think, oh yeah, I need to remember to breathe right now. Maybe there are a few. But most of the time, we don't think about our breathing. It's just a part of who we are as humans. And so the biblical picture is that love is like breathing for the Christian. It should animate and propel and strengthen every other activity we have in life, whether it is loving our spouse or going to work or cleaning the yard or exercising our spiritual gifts. We are to be propelled by love. You see, the spiritual gifts are good, but love is essential. You know, you may say, well, how do I know I'm a Christian pastor? What does the Bible say about knowing that I'm a Christian? And this is what the Bible says more than anything else. It says the ultimate test for whether or not a person is a Christian is whether or not we express love through our actions love toward God and obeying his commandments. So Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Think about the day that you stand before God. Every single person in this room and every single person on planet earth will one day stand before God. It's a humbling thought to think that we will stand before our creator one day. And you think about what would you say to God when you stand before him? The atheist philosopher Richard Dawkins was asked this. He's sort of the, um, the ringleader of the, uh, he's the band leader of the new atheists. And uh, Richard Dawkins was asked this, hey, Richard, what are you going to do if you die and you find out, in fact, there is a God, what are you going to say to him? And he said, quoting another uh, philosopher, he said, I'd shake my fist at God and say, not enough evidence, God, you didn't, you didn't give me enough evidence. Well, that's not going to cut it before God. What will you say before God? Some people might say this, God, I, I tried to be a good person. I really did. I, I tried to do the right thing. Isn't that enough for you, God? I mean, I, worked, I, I tried really hard. The Bible says God will say to that person, 
Depart from me, I never knew you. And it sounds harsh, but really what God is saying is, I don't have a relationship with you. You're not my child. You never, you never came to me. You never invited me into your life. I'm not your father. I don't know you. But if you stand before God and you say, God, I, I love you. I've, I've been looking forward to this day my whole life to be in your presence, to actually see your face. I know I don't deserve salvation, but you've saved me. You've reconciled me. I, I have no good apart from you, but it's your grace that has saved me and transformed me and given me eternal life. And now I'm here with you. And I just want to say thank you and that I love you. And the Bible says that God will look at you and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You may now enter your father's rest. Do I have a living relationship with God? That's the question to ask yourself. You say, look, I'm not sure. How do I know? How do I know if I love God? I, maybe you're not sure. Well, think about it like this. Think about a person that you love or think about an activity that you love. If there's a person that you love, you want to be with them. You want to spend time with them. You want to get to know them. You want to learn things about them. You want to do kind things for them. If there's an activity that you like, maybe you love golf. If somebody loves golf, what do they want to do? They want to play golf. They want to get out there. They want to enjoy the game. If you love God, you delight to be in his presence. You know that you need him more than anything else. It doesn't mean that you feel that at every moment of your life. It doesn't mean that you're always in the Bible, that you're always praying, that... Um, but, but overall, at the end of the day, you know God is your greatest hope. He's your only hope. He's your true source. He's your true source of delight. He's the center of your life. The, a metaphor I often give is God is the sun in your solar system and everything else is orbiting around him. And what happens with an idol is the idol becomes the center and everything else starts to rotate around the idol even God. And God says, no, I can't even be the closest thing orbiting around that idol. I have to be the center of your life. That's what it means to know God. There's many things in life that are good, but love is essential. Well, Paul then moves on. He, he then talks about the present versus the future. And Paul says this in verse 8. He says, love never fails. And so really, Paul could mean, if you think about this phrase, and it's more obvious in the Greek, that, that phrase could mean two different things. It could mean that love is never defeated. It never fails. In other words, it always wins. And another thing it means is that it could never come to an end or, or never become invalid. And of course, like so many things in Scripture, it means both. God's love is both eternal and indestructible. Do you know that? I think many of us are familiar with the idea that God's love is eternal. But do you know that it's indestructible? Do you know that nothing will conquer God's love, particularly in a world of terrorism where so often we see people uh, resorting to uh, power and, and control simply through violence and, and through fear? We need to remember that God's love is indestructible. Nothing will conquer it. It will conquer all of our enemies. That's what God's love is. It's both eternal and it's indestructible. Paul then goes on and he gives three metaphors. He gives three metaphors about our present experience versus our future experience. 
And the first is, he says this, he says, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, this is verse 10, what is in part disappears. I mentioned earlier, Betsy and I were in Mexico uh, at a resort. It was such a blessing from God. And uh, we enjoyed getting to know some of the staff. And you know how it is when you're in a foreign country and you don't speak the language, you enjoy trying to speak the language. You know, hola, buenos dias, buenos noches, buenos tardes, um, pina colada, por favor. Um, all these kind of very essential phrases that you need to know on a vacation. And uh, we enjoyed, um, you know, trying out our Spanish a little bit. And uh, the staff, of course, loved um, speaking to us. And, uh, but I'll tell you something about learning a language. You can get a textbook. You can practice learning a language. And you can learn various parts of a language from a textbook uh, or listening to CDs or something like that. But we all know what the best way to learn a language is. Everybody knows it. The best way to learn a language is immersion. The best way to learn a language is to go to a place where you don't have a choice. Either you're going to figure out where the bathroom is or you're not. Either you're going to figure out how to buy food at the grocery store or you're not. And, of course, all immigrants have this experience. You learn the language because you have to. And linguists will tell you that you've really mastered a language when it's no longer that you can just converse in a language. It's no longer that you can just get around town speaking that language. But you've truly mastered a language when you start to think in that language. Okay, if it's Spanish, you start to think in Spanish. You start to dream in Spanish. That's when you know you've truly mastered a language. You know, right now we have real knowledge of God. He's given it to us in his word. We can see it even when we go outside, we look at something beautiful. But a day is coming when our knowledge of God will be so much richer that it will be analogous to learning a language now in such a, um, an, an attempting and having real knowledge and having real conversational ability versus being a master of that language and even dreaming and thinking in that language. A day is coming where that's what our knowledge of God will be like. It will be complete. It will be full. And, and in fact, we'll never stop getting to know God because there's no, there's, there's no getting to the bottom of who he is. His depth is inexhaustible. His wonders we will never get to the bottom of. We will never cease to delight and admire and wonder at this God. That's the first way to think about this. For now, we know in part. Then Paul gives another metaphor. He gives a metaphor about childhood. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... Put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, we have to be clear here. Paul is not denigrating being a child. There's a place for being a child in life. Those of you who are parents know there's, as a parent, there's times when you need to say to your child, just enjoy being a kid. And I'll tell you, as someone who works with teenagers, and someone who sees the insane pressures and demands that I see on teenagers these days. Parents, we need to be saying that more than ever. You need to enjoy being a kid. You need to enjoy this stage of your life. 
because uh, I see now with social media and everything else how quickly everybody is growing up and how quickly uh, people are finding themselves stressed to the max, and we need to push against that. And so there are, uh, it's a very um, wise part of parenting is to say, listen, don't worry about that. Let your mom and dad worry about that. You enjoy being a kid, and you'll grow in your responsibility. It's not that we don't teach our children responsibility, but we do it at an age-appropriate way. So Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But of course, we know this too, parents. Childhood is not meant to last forever, okay? The, this was um, satirized in the, in the movie Matthew McConaughey, Failure to Launch, where he's like a 30-something and he's living at home with his parents and he's eating, you know, Lucky Charms every day. No, parent, we don't want that, right? We don't want you to stay a child forever because childhood is a good stage for what it is, but a child is meant to mature and develop and to grow. That's what we long for our children. We long for them to enjoy childhood, but we long for them to mature and develop into adulthood. And so Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And so the, the metaphor he's giving is there's a way that we grow in our faith. When we first are born again, and literally it's an apt metaphor, right? Because you're born, it's like you're a baby as a Christian. But then you begin to grow, and then you begin to mature. And of course, our full maturity, our full adulthood in the faith comes when we are with God, when we are in his presence. So it's not that we don't really know him now, but we look forward to a day where our maturity is complete in our knowledge of God. Paul gives one more metaphor. And I think this is the most helpful of all. He says this, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In the ancient world, glass making was nowhere near the sophistication of our glass making abilities today. In case you don't know, there's fiber optic cables that lay across oceans now that connect different continents. Those cables are made of incredibly fine glass. Um, our glass making abilities are, are incredible. In the ancient days, they didn't know how to make glass. They didn't know how to make it very well. Um, they didn't know how to, um, the 50 cent mirror that you could go buy at Stop and Shop, um, uh, they could not produce that in the ancient days. So a mirror in the ancient days was a flat piece of highly polished metal used to reflect an image. So mirrors in the ancient days were, was metal that you looked up and you, you saw an image. Now, of course, it wasn't a perfect image. It was a fuzzy image. It didn't always reflect perfectly. And so Paul is using this metaphor. He's making two points. All right. First of all, the word that he uses here the word that he uses for um, reflection. For now we see only a reflection. The Greek word is enigmati. Okay, enigmati. If you just think about that word, if I gave you 10 seconds, you'd figure out what English word comes from that. Enigmati. It's where we get our English word enigma. And of course, we know what an enigma is. It's a puzzle. It's a mystery. And so, in other words, Paul is saying, when we look at ourselves, there's something of a mystery there. In other words, because the image is not entirely clear. And Paul is making two incredible points here that are so helpful to us. First of all, he's saying this. There's a part of the Christian life right now that for us feels like an enigma. It feels like a puzzle. 
Think about this. Have you ever asked yourself, God, why are you so hidden in this world? Why doesn't God just come down from heaven right now and tear open the heavens, the divide, whatever that is, the divide, the heavenly world from the, from the material world and reveal himself and announce to the seven billion people on planet earth, here I am, you should worship me. Why doesn't God do that? Why is God relatively hidden from us? Of course, he's not entirely hidden. He's revealed in his word. He's revealed in nature, Psalm 19. Heavens declare the glory of God. And he's also given every single person an awareness of him. John Calvin called it the sensus divinitatis. In other words, the sense of divine that every human being has. So it's not that God hasn't revealed himself. But from our human perspective, we wonder, why has he not revealed himself more fully? How come he doesn't just, you know, appear right now in the room? Why doesn't he just appear to every person? Why doesn't he just open up the heavens? And this is what God says to us. He says, child, do you believe that I am eternal? Yes, Lord, I believe that. Child, do you believe that I'm all-powerful? Yes, Lord, I believe that. Child, do you believe that I have all wisdom? Yes, Lord, I believe that. Then I want you to trust me that the ways that I've chosen to disclose myself in the world are the best ways. And that I have made myself known in the ways that I need to make myself known for people to trust me and for people to believe in me. It's the same question with evil and suffering. We say, Lord, why? Why is there cancer? Somebody was at my house yesterday and they were just telling me about their parent who's suffering from stomach cancer. And just the grief and the pain. I was talking to someone else the day before, sharing about family brokenness extended in the family. We say, why? Why, Lord? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? It seems like an enigma to us. And yet God says to us, do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I trust you. That's the definition of faith. Do you believe that I can have reasons that go beyond your understanding? Yes, Lord, I believe that. Do you, do you believe my promise that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? Yes, Lord, I believe that. So trust me. So trust me. And trust that that which is a puzzle now will one day become clear. And that one day all evil and all suffering will end. And as Paul says, we will see God face to face. It's the first thing Paul's saying with this metaphor. He's saying another thing too, though, which is um, maybe even more profound. I'm going to get on an airplane on Tuesday. I'm going to fly out to see my wife and kids. I haven't, um, by the time I see my wife and kids, it will be 25 days since I've seen them. And it's a long time. And it's just because it's been an unusual summer for us. Um, uh, my kids have been with their family. They've been with their grandparents. And I've been back here mostly working. And, um, you know, I've talked to them on the phone. We've done FaceTime. We've done phone calls. But all of us know that none of those things compare to holding someone in your arms and hugging them and looking them in the eyes and, and smelling them and hearing them and hearing their voice and feeling their arms wrapped around you. No digital experience will ever match that. And look, I'm convinced we're 10 years away from Beam Me Up, Scotty, 
I mean, there's going to be holograms that appear around us, right? They're probably going to be scary at first. Um, you know, FaceTime, that's what's going to go next. We're just going to shoot up a hologram in front of each other. We're thousands of miles apart. And you know what? I'm sure that'll be cool, but I'll tell you this. It will never match being with someone. It will never match the physical experience of being in someone's presence. I miss my kids, and when you miss somebody, you miss being able to wrap your arms around them. You miss being able to give them a look that conveys a thousand words in a single glance. There's nothing like physically being with another person. You know what our hope is? We're going to physically be with God. It's not that we don't have his presence now. The Bible says we have the Holy Spirit that's the down payment. But if you know how a down payment works, it's not the real thing. Okay? You put a down payment, the full payment's coming later. We have his presence now. It's real. But later, we will be with him. Later, we will be known even as he knows us fully now. Later, we will be in his presence. And there will be nothing Nothing like that. I want to end with this. Intentions versus actions. All of us want to be loving people. And we want to be people whose love translates from our intentions into our actions. So I very briefly want to go through four ways that we can, by the power of the Spirit, translate our intentions into actions. Four things very quickly. First of all, this. If love is never-ending, then everything else in life is secondary by comparison. I know you know this, but the size of your home, your bank account, how successful you you are, what position you retire from at your work, um, your health, how good you looked when you were 27, um, it's all relative compared to love. Everything else is secondary. And ultimately, the question is, do you love God and do you know his love? Is it in your heart? That's what's ultimate. Secondly, in the Bible, to love is to act. God always expresses his love through action. We could give so many verses on this, but I'll give just one. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Action. We should judge. One way we should judge our growth in Christ is not simply our intentions, but our actions. Now, let me say this. Good intentions are not inherently bad. It's better to have good intentions than bad intentions. Of course, we would rather say, I want to love God more, but I'm having a hard time, then I don't even want to love God. Of course, it's better to want to love God more. But the, the only danger with intentions is that we can stop with intentions and that we can spend our whole life just saying, well, Lord, I hope I love you more one day. And I hope I serve you more one day. We don't want to stop with our intentions. We want the power of the Spirit to help us bring our intentions into actions. And you say, look, Pastor, I I don't know how to, if I'm honest, I'm not sure I know how to do that. I lack the power to break an addiction, a habit, a characteristic, to heal a relationship that's messed up. And here's my response. It's exactly where God wants you to be. Because the Bible says he gives more grace. The Bible says when you are weak, then you are strong. The Bible says get on your knees and tell God that you're powerless 
and he will give you the power to turn intentions into actions. He will do it. He will do it by the power of his spirit. You see, the, the biblical message is where as Christians, how we become more like Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit through our actions. We're not passive robots just sitting around on a beach chair saying, God, I'm just waiting for you to make me more holy. And on the same time, we're not people who just do it on our own. But we're people who are in desperate need of grace and we're in desperate need of grace every single day. So we get on our knees and say, God, you need to do this. And that goes into the third thing, which is that we need each other. One of the biggest lies Satan's ever told anybody is that being a Christian means you can do it on your own. You think about what happened with Adam and Eve. They sin. And what's the first thing they do? Do they go and say, hey, let's get some weapons and let's fight God now. He's our enemy. Let's go take him on. Hey, let's go look for a new house somewhere. Let's get a real estate agent. No. But what's the first thing Adam and Eve do? They hide. They hide. And you know what the lie of Satan is for every Christian? Go hide. Go deal with your sin on your own. Go try to be a Christian on your own. And of course... God says to us, no, I've given you my spirit. I've given you my church. I've given you community. You're not supposed to do it on your own. You're supposed to do it with each other, walking as brothers and sisters. We need to challenge and encourage each other. We need to be both givers and recipients of love. Some people have a hard time giving love. Other people have a hard time receiving love without paying anything back. We need to point each other to the source of inexhaustible love, which is God. Finally, we need to never stop pursuing the love of God. I'll end with this story. There's a theologian who lived in the 20th century. His name was Karl Barth. If you're in the theology world at all, you know who Karl Barth is. It would be like saying to a jazz musician, do you know who Miles Davis is? It'd be like saying to an NBA fan, do you know who LeBron James is? Uh, Karl Barth was a name that was known worldwide in the world of theology. He, he lived through World War I and World War II. And uh, he's a Swiss theologian. I don't agree with everything he wrote, but um, some of the things he wrote were, were good, and he was an incredible mind. And he was at the University of Chicago in 1962, and he was giving a lecture. And, of course, this famous person, known all around the world, is there. And he's at the University of Chicago, and there's, the room's filled with PhDs and all these brilliant people, and everybody wants to hear Karl Barth. And somebody raises their hand and says, Dr. Bart, can you please summarize your life's work, your theology, your life's work and your theology in a concise manner? Can you summarize it in one or two sentences or maybe a paragraph? And of course, everybody in the room is thinking, we're going to hear a lot of three or five syllable words. This guy's going to give us some kind of you know, incredibly deep, rich, complex theological answer. And Karl Barth looks at the guy and he says, yeah, I can answer that question. He said, there's a, mo- there's a song my mom used to sing me. It goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was his answer. We don't ever get past the love of God. You don't outgrow the love of God. You don't wake up one morning and think, I don't need to hear that God loves me. Every morning we wake up and we think, God, or we need to think, God, you love me. 
And that's the most incredible and profound and life-changing truth in the entire universe. And I need to sing it to myself today, and I need to sing it to myself tomorrow. I'll end with this. This is Paul again, this time in the book of Romans. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, captivate us by your love, a love that never ends. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.